At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, I'm really thankful for the opportunity we have today to gather and to worship and to open God's Word together. And this morning, as we open God's Word, we're going to be continuing a series that we began a couple of weeks ago called Tomorrow, Preparing for the Sun to Rise Again. And this series finds its root in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus, just a few days before he goes to the cross and offers his life as a sacrifice for our sins, gathers his disciples on the side of the Mount of Olives to give what Bible scholars call the Olivet Discourse, meaning he gave a discourse or a sermon while standing on the Mount of Olives. And the subject of that sermon that he taught to his disciples that day was the end, the ultimate tomorrow. Jesus wanted his followers to know in no uncertain terms that he was actually coming back to this earth and how they should respond as a result. And that message was preserved for us so that today as we gather here at Wildwood Community Church, that same sermon is given to us and we have a chance to read it and to talk about it and to see what its connection is to our lives. And that's what we're gonna do this morning as we are in the third installment in this series, looking at today, Matthew 24, verses 32 through 51. But before we look at those verses together, I want to just acknowledge that we are in Oklahoma. Can I get an amen to that? We, there you go. That's the loudest y'all have been ever in a sermon. All right, there we go. So we're in Oklahoma. And because we're in Oklahoma, there are a number of things I know about you and that you know about me. But one thing I know is that we have a shared hobby. And in that, I don't mean OU football. Because there are some in this room who don't like sports, and there are others who follow other teams. But as Oklahomans, there is a hobby that all of us share. And what is it? The weather, right? It's the weather. We're Oklahomans. We love the weather. Our weather men and women are rock stars, right? We're infatuated with the weather. And the reason why is because, I don't know if you know it or not, but the the weather changes on occasion here. Many times, several times, even within the same week or the same day. And especially in the springtime, the conditions exist for some explosive storms to spring up here so that people from all over the world will come to our city to learn about severe storms. I mean, weather is our hobby. It's a part of who we are. And because of our proximity to that kind of weather, uh, we become used to being weather aware. And in the springtime, sometimes they can look several days in advance and they'll say there are, there's the possibility of severe weather out there. Maybe tornadoes, maybe wind, maybe hail. And we want to know, are we in the yellow? Are we in the orange? Are we in the red? And we begin to follow the weather and we have a plan for getting information about what's transpiring. And we make a plan about what we're gonna do in connection to that news that weather is coming our way, right? And and those plans vary from person to person. For some of you, when that warning goes out, you get underground. 
right? You have a place in your house and you might get down underground. For others of you, you make sure your children and your wife get underground and you go into the front yard, right? Still, for others, you're new to this and you're not certain what, what you should do. But the reality is that all of us in Oklahoma are hobbyists when it comes to the weather, and we need to formulate a response as a result. Now, friends, as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about its uh, parallels inside of what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus lets us know that he is coming back. And when he comes back, judgment will come with him. In that sense, there is a storm that is coming to this earth. And in no uncertain terms, Jesus sounds the alarm and lets us know that that day is coming. And he sounds that alarm not to just frighten us, but because he wants us to take an appropriate response. And our responses as people who live in this world vary from person to person. For some of you, the response to the knowledge that Jesus is coming back someday is similar to our response to the storms. We want our kids or our loved ones to get in the shelter. Meanwhile, we think we can just go and weather it on our own. For others of us, we take shelter in Christ knowing that his return will bring judgment upon the earth. And still for others, this might be the first time you've heard that alarm sounded and you're wondering what you should do. Well, friends, today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 51, where we're going to formulate a response on the words of Jesus regarding his second coming. Tom Constable says this, Bible scholar says, Jesus' disciples need to maintain constant vigilance since the daily grind, including distress and persecution, will tend to lull them into dangerous complacency. It is normal for even remarkable signs of an impending change to have no effect on people. For example, when meteorologists announce the coming of a hurricane or tornado, there are always some people in its path who refuse to seek safety. We've seen that transpire in our world, but friends, let's not take knowledge of the return of Christ and not take an appropriate response. Jesus sounded the warning, and he wants us to respond in a certain way. And we're going to see that. Think of it this way. Jesus wants us to be second coming aware. He's kept us advised that we might respond in faith in him. I want to read for us Matthew 24, verse 32 through 51. And then after I read those verses, I want to back up and see three things inside of those verses about the second coming of Christ and how you and I can prepare for the sun to rise again. Beginning in verse 32, Jesus is preaching and he says this. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, friends, in those 19 verses, we're going to see three things this morning. The first thing that is important for us to see is this. We need to hear the warning. Hear the warning. Now, we see this in the first 10 verses or so of this section. But before we look at those more in depth, it's helpful for us to remember the context, really to review where we've been in the first two weeks of this series so that we know what is transpiring here. See, in this section, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, when are you coming back to this city and establishing your kingdom? When is the end of this age happening and the beginning of the next? That was their question. And Jesus' answer to that question we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the first 31 verses was a variety of things. The first thing Jesus said was, he said, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. In the first couple of verses, he says, this temple that you see in front of you is going to be torn brick from brick. There's going to be a judgment that's going to come upon the nation of Israel for their rejection of their Savior and Messiah. Because they didn't accept Jesus, the consequence would follow. That's the first thing Jesus said. The second thing that he said, though, was that at a future time, the destruction of the temple was 70 AD. Jesus says, at a future time, though, there will be the beginning of a time of great tribulation upon the earth where all kinds of challenging things will happen. Jesus described that era, that future tribulation, as the hardest days this earth has ever seen. And he talks about there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be an antichrist who arises and who has some kind of abomination that he transpires Things that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, there's going to be persecution of the church, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be lions and tigers and bears, oh my, there's going to be all of these things happening on the earth in that last period. And we've seen that that is really a future period of about seven years that will precede the return of Jesus. But at the end of that seven years, the third thing Jesus lets them know is that he's coming back. And he made that quite clear to them in verses 27 through 31 and what we looked at last Sunday, that in a, you know, a way that cannot be refuted, he will come back in bodily form to this earth. 
So that is the context of this section. And Jesus is teaching this sermon to his disciples. And then after he makes those statements, he begins to continue in the verses that I just read to talk about how we should respond in light of his coming back. Well, the first thing that we need to see about what he said related to that was he, he says that what he's said about that end time is actually going to happen. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He says, everything I'm talking about the end is something that is actually going to happen upon the earth. Now, that's important for us to remember, especially when I connect it to weather in the introduction, because we are used to hearing warnings about weather that don't materialize, especially as it pertains to snow. We just want some snow, right? We're used to hearing that snowmageddon is coming and it doesn't materialize because it's difficult to forecast those kinds of things. It's hit and miss. But when it comes to when it comes to the return of Christ, Jesus says, "What I say about that event is absolutely certain." There are things in this world that'll shift and shake, but but I won't. Jesus says, "I know what's happening in the future, and I'm letting you know the truth. And so, friends, make no mistake, the warning that Jesus is about to give us is not something that may or may not happen. It's something that all of us must deal with. Well, after talking about how this is something that is definitely going to happen, we see a few things in this section about what is going to happen and the warning that is given. The first thing has to do with the timing of the return of Christ. Jesus makes it clear that the timing of of his return is something that will, the season of that return will be identifiable. He, He uses the illustration of a fig tree. And he said, just like this tree over here, how when it begins to bud some little green leaves, you know that summer is near, you know that spring is coming, so you'll know when you see wars and rumors of wars and and earthquakes and the Antichrist rising, you'll know in that last era that the season is right for the return of the Son of God. Jesus says that season is identifiable. Now, though the season is identifiable, Jesus says, the exact day and hour are not known. Look at what what he says there. In verse 36, he says, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. Not you, Peter. Not you, Thomas. Not you, Bartholomew. Not the angels in heaven. And Jesus makes this amazing statement, not even me. Now, why is that so remarkable that Jesus would say that? Because who's Jesus? He's the son of God. And God knows everything. But Jesus says in in his humility of coming to the earth, he has delegated even knowledge of that event to his heavenly Father. And so though the season of his return will have a number of signs, the exact moment of his return is information known by the heavenly Father alone. That's the point. And if that's the case, then we ought to have some humility when it comes to forecasting future events, shouldn't we? I mean, if Jesus says, nobody knows, not even me, then that ought to inspire a little humility in us. You know, we all have been familiar over our lifetime with people who have written books. 
that have said the end of the world is going to happen in 1988 or in 1999 or in, or in, or in, whatever. There'll be a number of books more written on that topic. The reason why those books are such folly is because Jesus says, hey, no one's going to know the day or the hour, not even the person that sold that book. The events that he describes will describe a literal season upon the earth that will precede his return. But those events are general enough that we might mistake them for the wrong era. But when they begin, they'll all happen within one generation. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Now that's a kind of a, a challenging statement. Let's just be honest. That's a challenging statement. And it's really confused Bible scholars for 2,000 years. And I, I want to say up front that our confusion is on us and not on Jesus. Right? Jesus knows what he's talking about. It's us that are struggling to understand exactly what he meant. But some have seen that statement and they believe that it must be referring to the generation that was first hearing that message in the first century. And so they want to say that all of the events of Matthew chapter 24 take place within the lifetime of the original disciples. Now, I don't think that's an acceptable position. And here's why. There are several things in Matthew 24 that did not happen in the first century. Most notably what? The return of Jesus, right? The headline event did not happen in the first century. And so I don't think that what Jesus is saying when he says that this generation will not pass away, I don't think he's saying that those disciples will see it all because they didn't. But I think what he was saying was when these events begin, then I will return within that generation. In other words, the events of Matthew 24 are not talking about some general conditions that apply to a 2,000-year period of human history from his ascension until his second coming. But it's located in just some future events that will immediately precede his return so that one generation will see that entire time of tribulation. We saw in previous weeks how that time of tribulation was maybe about seven years in length. And so one generation that sees it begin will also see it end. Now, after talking a little bit about the timing of when that would happen and how we could see the season develop around it, Jesus reminds us of what will happen when he comes. And that what that will happen is judgment that will come to the earth when he returns. And the way that Jesus talks about that as he talks about it by comparing it to the days of Noah. He says, for just as it was in the days of Noah. Now, here's the thing. This is always challenging when you talk about Noah, because there are probably some of you in the room who have a nursery with Noah's ark on the wall, and, and I appreciate that. Our son had a little, uh, little tykes playset that was Noah's ark, right? But, but when we think about Noah, it's not just a cute story about a boat and some animals, but it actually is a historical account of God's judgment coming upon the earth. Because of the sinfulness of man, God sends a flood that kills every human that doesn't get in the boat of his protection, which ends up being only Noah and his family. 
And so the story of Noah is a story of God's judgment coming to the earth. And so when Jesus says, when I come back, it's going to be like the days of Noah, what he's saying is it's going to be a time of judgment that is going to come upon the earth. Salvation to those who get in the boat. Salvation to those who trust in Jesus Christ and his provision and his death on the cross. They will be saved. But for everyone else, Judgment will come like a flood and will sweep them away to judgment. That's what Jesus says. That's why we say that there's a warning that we need to heed because at his return, judgment will come with him. And that judgment will come and it will be personal. It's interesting that Jesus uses these examples and he says that when that judgment comes, one will be taken and one will be left. The idea is that one is taken or swept away in judgment when he comes back while the other is left. That means that you're not going to be saved by who you're hanging out with at that time. Children, your parents' faith can't save you. You must have a response on your own. Husbands, your wives' faith can't save you. College students, your roommates' faith can't save you. High school and middle schoolers, your participation in youth group can't save you. There must be a decision to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what it means to to be saved when the judgment of God comes, that we're trusting in Christ. One will be taken, the other will be saved. Friends, Jesus makes it quite clear that when he returns, judgment will come upon the earth, and it has implications for all of us. Now, I want to get back to that in a moment, but before we go any further, I want to hit pause on Matthew 24. And I want to hit pause on Matthew 24 because I want to talk for a moment about the rapture. Now, when I say that, uh, there are some of you that right now on the inside of your being are going, Finally, right? We're three weeks in and you haven't even mentioned the rapture yet because you've, you've read about this and you've thought about this and, and you're wondering how the events of the rapture connect to Matthew 24. For others of you, you're going, what's the rapture, right? You're wondering, is the rapture, is that the mascot of the basketball team from Toronto, the Toronto raptures? Come on, just be with me a little bit here. Um, We're coming at this from a variety of different spots, right, and a lot of different things. But when we think of this, this concept of the rapture, it actually has its roots inside of the Scripture. The word rapture means to be caught up. That's what it means, to be caught up to something. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, there's this concept that there will come a time when the believers who are on the earth will be caught up together with Jesus in the sky, that will be taken out of this world and be saved by God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It's the idea that there is a rescue of God's people at some point who are living upon the face of the earth. And that event of rescue is not what I think is happening in Matthew 24. See, in Matthew 24, we're talking about the second coming of Christ, and when he comes, the one who is taken and the other is left, the one who's taken is taken in judgment. So I don't think this is talking about the rapture in Matthew 24. 
But the rapture, I do believe, is a real and future event that, that I believe and Wildwood believes will actually happen before the tribulation begins upon the earth. In other words, at some point between now and the beginning of the great tribulation, there will be an event in history where the, the believers who are on the face of the earth will be caught up together with our Lord, will be rescued and saved out of this world before the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. Now, why do we believe that that event of being caught up together with the Lord will precede the tribulation? Well, the reason why is, is really several, but I'll give you three reasons why I believe that it happens before. The first of those reasons is, is because God has not destined us for wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 talks about God has not destined us for wrath. So before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, the church is taken out of the earth. A second reason has to do with what is said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. If you were with us last week, you know that we talked about the coming of the Antichrist and his power being exhibited upon the earth. And that verse that we looked at was in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What 2 Thessalonians 2 says is that before the Antichrist will take his position of power, the restrainer must be removed from the earth. And, and I believe that the restrainer there is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So before the Antichrist will take power, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is housed where? Inside of believers will be removed from the earth. A third reason why I, I think that it happens before that time is because the tribulation era is an era that focuses again on the nation of Israel. Uh, we see that in Matthew 24. Those events are occurring where? In Jerusalem and in Israel. There's a, a focus in that region of the earth again. In Revelation, in the parallel passages, it talks about 144,000 Jews from all the tribes of Israel coming to faith in Christ and being evangelists all over the face of the earth. Why is that so prominent? Well, if the church is gone, who's going to give testimony to our Lord and Savior? Well, God will raise up his witness in that era from Israel. It's also found when we look at the Old Testament's description of the tribulation in places like Jeremiah chapter 30 that describes the tribulation as an era of Jacob's trouble. What was Jacob's other name? Israel. Friends, that tribulation era is a time where God is disciplining the nation of Israel to bring them to repentance before the return of their Savior. For those reasons, I think the rapture occurs before we ever get to Matthew chapter 24 and the events that are occurring there after verse 3 and following. But I think it's important for us to remember the reality of these events that will transpire in the days ahead. Now, how do we respond? How do we respond to this warning that is happening. Well, Jesus makes a statement about how we're to respond. In verse 42, he lets us know that we're to stay awake. We're to stay awake because we don't know the hour in which he will return. Well, what, what does it mean for us to stay awake? Well, it means to keep our focus upon him, to heed the warning, to remember that he's coming back. Warren Wiersbe says this of those verses, 
referencing the time of Noah as he says them. He says, what kept the people from listening to Noah's message and obeying? The common interests of life, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. That's what Jesus says. Why did the people in Noah's day not respond by getting in the boat? Because they were too busy living life. Why will people not respond to follow Christ? Because they're too busy living life. But Wiersbe accurately says, he says, they lost the best by living for the good. It's a dangerous thing to get so absorbed in the pursuits of life that we forget that Jesus is coming. Friends, Jesus says that we are to stay awake in light of his return. But what does it mean to stay awake? Well, he gives us a couple of of ideas about what it means to stay awake in the verses that follow. First thing that we see about what it means to heed the warning or stay awake is that we would take shelter now. We would take shelter now. Now, we see this in verses 43 and 44. See, Jesus is quite clear that we're not going to know the exact moment of his return so that we should live our lives now as if he is coming back tomorrow. We should trust him now. We should not wait for some future date to respond and to live for him, but we should respond immediately. Of this, Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon, he says, that our Lord is coming is certain, that his coming may be at any moment as a matter of faith. And that we are ignorant of the time of his coming is a matter of fact. Friends, we may not know when he is coming, but we're certain that he is coming. And if that's the case, then we should make a decision to trust him now. Now, whether we're waiting for the rapture and the removal of the church before judgment comes to the earth, or or whether this is a response of somebody who is living in that last seven-year period, what are we waiting on? Let's trust him now because we don't know how much longer of a life that we have. Friends, if you're a middle school student, you're not promised high school. If you're a high school student, you're not promised college. If you're a college student, you're not promised young adult dumb. If you're a young adult dumb, you're not you're not you're not promised marriage. If you're married, you're not promised children. You're not promised empty, empty nest. See, we, we think that we've all got 80-some years. Why not just wait to respond to Christ until we're at 79? That shows the arrogance of what we think we can make of our lives on our own, doesn't it? But even then, we're not guaranteed that. People all the time, lives are cut short. And that's just talking about the natural outflow of living in this world, much less thinking about the rapture or the return of Christ. We don't know when that is going to happen. So what are we waiting on? Why not respond today? Jesus drives that point home by giving an analogy of a thief in the night. I think it's, it's funny for us to think about Jesus comparing himself to a thief. He was not comparing himself to everything about a thief. He wasn't saying he was up to no good, but he was comparing himself to a thief in the sense that a thief comes at an unexpected time and hour. And if a homeowner knew that someone was going to break into their house, they would make proper 
accommodations before they arrived. They would, they would buy a dog. They would put a security system in. They would stay up all night in shifts and invite friends to come over to, to guard the doors because they would know that he was coming. If I could assure you that a thief was going to break into your house at some point in the next couple of weeks, your life would look different for the next couple of weeks. And what Jesus was saying was, he says, because you don't know when I'm coming back, I'm like that thief in the night. You need to make proper accommodations now. Don't wait. Jesus invites us to take our shelter in him today. To see in his death on the cross the protection that we need from the wrath of God concerning our sins because that payment was fully paid if we'll just trust in him. You know, some want their kids to get in the shelter, the kids in children's ministry, the kids in student ministry, make sure they're baptized, make sure they're a part of a church because we want them to be protected where we think we can withstand the F5 by standing out in the parking lot. Friends, Jesus is saying, what are you waiting on? I'm telling you, the storm is coming and you can't stand. The proper response is not to stand on your own two feet. The proper response is to bow before our Savior and to take cover in his shelter. You trusting in Christ? That's the response. We would take shelter now. Friends, we're going to look at that response a little more in depth next week in another parable that Jesus tells about 10 virgins, the first part of chapter 25. The first response is that we would take shelter now. What's the second response that Jesus encourages? That second response is that we would live for him. We see that in verses 45 through 51. Now, when, when I talk about the response of taking shelter now, that's somewhat intuitive, isn't it? I mean, we would anticipate that to be the response. What do I do in light of the fact that judgment is coming? I need to take shelter in the Savior. That makes sense. But oftentimes, the rest of our response gets confused in our world. You know, sometimes people take a knowledge of the return of Christ, and their response to that is buying extra water bottles and storing them in the basement, buying some MREs, some meal readies to eat, stockpiling weapons, because it seems like times are going to be tough on the earth at the end. And so our response is to somehow provide for ourselves physically, to learn how to farm or or something like that. There's there's a lot of theories out there about how we should respond in light of the fact that the world is going to end and Christ is going to come back and there's going to be hardship on the earth before he does. But here's the thing. That's not the response that Jesus told us to have. Friends, Jesus is concerned for our souls. And his response that he calls for us is to take shelter in him, but also to live for him. To live for him right now, to orient our lives with him as our master today. That's the appropriate response, knowing that he's coming back. And the example he gives to to help drive that home is through this story about a master who has some servants. And the master says, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave for an extended period of time. And he puts his servants in charge. Now, while the, the master is gone, it says his, his, his return was delayed. And so it's an extended period of time. And so we can see the setup and how it connects to you and I, can't we? Because we have a master, Jesus, who ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago, and his return has been delayed for at least 2,000 years now and counting. 
while he has been gone, he has entrusted his work to his servants. Began with the disciples, but it continues, friends, with you and I. And Jesus says that with this master who leaves, who gives his estate over to the servants, he says there's two kinds of responses that those servants had. He said some of the servants were faithful. What that meant was they continued to operate as their master would want them to operate. They treated their fellow servants, they treated the people who were around them with respect and dignity as their master would have. They lived their lives with the same moral code and ethic that their master had displayed. And because of that, when their master comes back, he is excited to see that they have remained true to their calling as his followers, and they're rewarded. But there's another set of of servants, and they don't respond in such a noble way. As a matter of fact, that other set of servants responds by saying, you know what? He hasn't come for a long time, and so I think we ought to just do whatever we want to do. No longer are their lives governed by the will of their master. It's governed by the will of their appetites and their own minds and what they think is best. And so they begin to do whatever they want to do. They begin to mistreat those around them because they see other people as just there to serve their needs. They begin to carouse and to, and to drink and to live a, a moral life that is, is fallen and broken and not as their master would have desired or intended. And Jesus says, when that master comes back, those servants will not be rewarded, but they will receive judgment. Whether that is a loss of reward or whether that is demonstration of the fact that they were never truly servants of their master is yet to be determined. But the idea is clear. We are not to to look at our time as servants of our master as just our own, but we are to operate in this world according to his code, following his standard, inspired by his spirit, treating others as he would treat them, following his direction in all things. Friends, how are we to respond in light of the return of Christ? We're to respond by living for him. And this response we'll look at more in depth in two weeks when Jesus tells the parable in verse 14 of chapter 25 and following about the parable of the talents. But in all of these things, friends, let us remember, let's remember There's a warning of judgment coming. Let us take shelter in Christ. Let's live for him. Father, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to, to gather and to worship today. And we thank you that we can find cover and protection in Jesus. And I, I pray that that everyone in this room and everyone who hears my voice, that they would, would do just that, that they would find hope and life in Jesus. And Father, we thank you that we uh, have been given that information and that you have saved us in your mercy and in your grace. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.